the explanation is sort of sitting there in plain sight. I mean, it is to do with the extent to which we've over-allocated reward and esteem to just one cluster of human aptitudes. Welcome to the seventh episode of Uncommon Decency. Meritocracy is no longer all the rage. And a slate of written books have underscored the flaws that in her in basing too much status on the fuzzy notion of merit. But specifically, what is cognitive meritocracy? David Goodhart, who coins the phrase in his most recent book, is one of the UK's foremost scholars of populism. You may remember the famous dichotomy between the anywheres and the somewheres. Head Hand Hart takes issue with the way that our post-industrial economies have come to overvalue cognitive skills at the expense of the wider spectrum of human ability. We hope you'll enjoy this episode, and please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so that others can hear about Uncommon Decency as well. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Thanks so much for listening. Today we are delighted and privileged to be joined by David Goodhart, David is a renowned journalist. Um, he's famous uh, mostly for his, uh, his uh, prize contributions to the contemporary understanding of, of populism. Uh, he is the founder and former editor of Prospect, the British magazine. Uh, before that, David had been a, a correspondent for the Financial Times for about 12 years, most of which were spent in Germany. He, is, uh, he has also been the director of the London-based think tank, Demos. Uh, currently, he's the head of immigration demography and integration and the and the integration unit at another Westminster um, Institute called Policy Exchange. Uh, most famously, oh, well, actually, he was before that. He was the author in 2013 of the British Dream: Successes and Failures of Post-War Immigration. But most famously, and this is what um, many people in our, in our audience will associate David David with, he was in 2017 the author of uh, The Road to Somewhere: The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. And people will. I think um, vividly remember David's coining of that famous dichotomy of the, the anywheres and the somewheres. Uh, but just last month, David is, is actually out with a new book um, with Penguin Random House. The book is called Head, Hand, and Heart, The Struggle for Dignity in the 21st Century. I would really encourage everyone to, to head over to, to Amazon and, and get their hands on a copy. It's a fantastic book, and it's it's what I want to start with uh, today, this morning, David. It's um, It was really great to, um, to read your um, your book, I think, um, you know, other people have kind of drawn on on similar narratives, and um, there's been a, a slate of recent books that have kind of invited meritocracy for uh, several reasons. Uh, you know, it's morally questionable; it can sort of drain um, the collective purpose of society. Uh, but in your book, you really go go a lot deeper, and um, you kind of place at the very roots of the populist upsets. Um, across the West and over recent years, this failure of merit- meritocratic societies to democratically apportion uh, repute and self-esteem across, you know, life paths and, and professions, but beyond those, beyond just those that require, you know, cognitive aptitudes. Um, and I'm really curious, can you sort of um, speak to how, you know, the, the sort of the observations and the thought processes you've had uh, that have led you to write this book and how this, um, how this new analysis ties into your earlier work on populism? Yeah, sure. Um, well, thanks very much for inviting me. Um, and um, yeah, I know it's, it's a good opportunity to to um, or connect the themes of um, of my first book, or not my first book, but my, my previous book, The Road to Somewhere, 
which was looking at the value divides in in you know rich democratic societies that have that have produced this mass political alienation that's led to Brexit, Trump, European populism, and so on. Um, and my my emphasis in that book was on was on the value divides, which was itself partly a product of um, educational stratification, the massification of higher education. Particular, particular issue in the UK where we're international outliers in the proportion of certainly school leaver undergraduates, people who go straight from school to university, who go to residential universities. And the, so there's a sort of physical, geographical divide um, which overlaps with, a, with an educational and a kind of values divide. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, my, my main motive for writing that was to kind of explore the roots of political alienation and, and head, hand, heart, uh, the struggle for, for dignity and status. You forgot about status. Uh, the struggle for dignity and status in the 21st century um, uh, is kind of, well, you know, it's sort of part two of that inquiry really into uh, political alienation. And, I, and I, I'm sort of, I'm claiming that, you know, that, that, the explanation is sort of sitting there in plain sight. I mean, it is to do with uh, not just educational stratification, but the kind of um, the, the 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 extent to which we've uh, you know allocated, over allocated reward and esteem to just one cluster of human aptitudes. Uh, I mean, you know, at some level, you could say this goes back to kind of you know almost the origins of civilization. You know, sort of classical uh, philosophy you know, looked um, you know. The, sort of elevated thought uh, this sort of level of of purity and esteem whereas the body perhaps reinforced by by 2000 years of christianity the idea of the body as a sort of source of weakness and and corrupt and, and so on i mean in, at, lo- at some level these are very ancient ideas but uh, but i think they've been given a real a real new impetus by particularly by the expansion of higher education over the last 30 or 40 years, which in effect means much of Europe catching up with the mass higher education in the US that began already back in the 50s and the 60s. Um, but the, but just, just to touch briefly on the whole um, meritocracy um, issue, I mean, as you... Uh, as you know, um, there has been this, this slate of recent books uh, we've had um, perhaps most notably Michael Sandel's book, Tyranny of Merit. We've got Daniel Markovitz, The Meritocracy Trap, but we've also had um, uh, Kwame Anthony Apaya has, has, has recently, uh, again, so it's, uh, I mean, scepticism about meritocracy that we actually associate with the man who coined the term, Michael Young, his famous book, uh, it was a critique of meritocracy back in the late 1950s. Um, a very, I mean, a, 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 not not really a, a, an easy read that book, but but he did have great insight, I think, into really into human psychology, um, and you know, new forms of um, of sort of status and resource divide that that had historically been based on on property ownership and things were now going to be based on uh, also the sort of luck of the draw of the. the the cognitive ability you were born with. Um, I mean, he, he was really quite an extreme egalitarian. I mean, I think very few people would would um, would share Michael Young's view of the world today. I mean, he, he didn't like meritocracy for the really straightforward reason that it that it uh, that it legitimated inequality. He didn't want any inequality. Really. Um, and I do think that there is there is a sort of problem with a lot of the um, 
the merit. I mean, although I'm, you know, in a way, I, I would lump my book in with some of those other uh, meritocracy critique books, but I think I do. I take a slightly different, which is, um, um, as I think you were you were implying, that I sort of focus more on the on the cognitive, um, in, you know, in, in in that phrase, the cognitive meritocracy, uh, and that's partly because I sort of acknowledge. As I think, perhaps some of the other meritocracy critics. I mean, look, one can see why meritocracy is out of favour, particularly in the US, because in the period when meritocracy has become a more um, sort of commonly espoused political ideology, I think initially often actually picked up by the centre left, despite um, the fact that the critique of meritocracy also came from the left. But uh, I mean, I think sort of you know back in the eighties and nineties. It became a more overt part of a sort of social democratic centre-left uh, political ideology. Um, I think, but partly because the centre-left had had to accept so much of the political economy of the centre-right. I mean, not completely. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't go along with this kind of neoliberal phrase that there's really no difference between Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher. I mean, that's just obviously not true. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, the, but you know, the new New Labour and indeed the New Democrats did have to accept a great deal of the. Thatcher Reagan reforms, so they were kind of looking for new stories, as it were. And of course, one of the stories was, you know, as as we can still see today, one of the stories was uh, the sort of the cultural story, um, you know, support for minorities being in favour of large scale immigration, um, the you know the, the sort of embrace of, of diversity in, in many kinds of many kinds. Um, but I think one of the other stories was the meritocracy story, uh, and it was. I think the left felt that it could it could sort of bang that drum more loudly than the right because the right was still associated with defending privilege of certain kinds and although, I mean the right kind of adopted it too and indeed practiced it in some you know Margaret Thatcher famously inherited a conservative party in which um, in which um, you know men with large estates had a very still had a very large role in the party and she turned it into so the joke goes into the party of estate agents uh, um people who buy and sell houses um and um so i mean it, it very quickly became a kind of consensus across all you know equality of opportunity meritocracy you know who could possibly be against it um i think the reason why i went to, you know the reason why it has gone so out of favour, particularly in, in a funny sort of way in the US. After all, the US, perhaps compared to um, to more to, to Europe, with its sort of historical accretions of advantage and its sort of you know aristocratic hangovers and so on. Uh, you know, America was always seen as the kind of meritocratic sort of fresh air. Um, but now the, the, you know, this is where the sort of centre of the critique is. I think partly because that that period since the 1980s and 90s has been a, a period of growing and, and really quite grotesque inequality and meritocracy has has seemed to legitimize it uh, and i think that um that it, that expand, and i think the, I mean, the other the other the other truth that i think we have to face is it turns out meritocracy other than pretty limited and partial forms is very difficult to implement because you know it's sort of human nature i mean the you know parents in free societies parents can um you know can still largely hand on their advantages to their children and will do so if allowed to do so um whatever your background whatever your ideology that's what people do um and 
that that places a great constraint. And, and you know, I mean, you, it's no, you know, you, you can abolish abolish private education. You can sort of put various obstacles in the way of that process, but people will find ways around them. Uh, and um, I mean, I was, I was just chatting. Um, I was involved in a seminar with people in Singapore the other day. Singapore meritocracy is the sort of state religion of Singapore. It was founded on the idea of merit because the previous the the Malayan Federation or whatever it was called was partly based on the distribution of kind of advantage through ethnicity. Um, you know, Malaysia has these sort of three major ethnic blocks, the Bumiputra, the Chinese and Indians. Um, and it was partly um, a feeling that, you know, the, the majority Chinese that constitute a Singaporean um, you know, nation were being disadvantaged by this um, by this distribution of advantage through ethnicity. Um, so, like I say, right from the start, it's been central to their self belief. But they are finding too, uh, and 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 also they didn't, you know, unlike say a typical European country trying to implement a meritocracy with a whole history of sort of social class privilege and differentiation. In Singapore, they had much less of that. So it was a sort of very fertile place to to start a meritocratic society. And, uh, and to some extent, it's been quite successful. Uh, that's partly because they've, you know, they've moved dramatically from being you know, virtually a third world economy to a first world economy. That process in itself creates a lot more, a lot more room at the top. I mean, all the social mobility academics will tell you that there, there isn't a huge amount of movement up and down um, of, is it absolute or relative? I can never remember which, but, you know, the, the sort of dim rich kids sort of going down the ladder and bright poor going up. I mean, that does happen. I mean, particularly the latter happens, but the most important determinant of social mobility uh, which is obviously related to meritocracy, is so-called more room at the top. So that when in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we were, the, the, the knowledge economy was emerging, uh, so corporations were demanding many more cognitively trained people. We had the growth of professions in uh, in the public sector, apart from males, huge increase, particularly in Europe, in you know teachers, in university lecturers, in doctors. Uh, in medical professionals of various kinds, as the welfare state expanded. Uh, so you had a huge increase in, and you had that too in Singapore, but now they're getting to a point where they are starting to see the ossification of meritocracy. They're starting to see, um, you know, the, the, the children of the people who've been to the, the top universities in Singapore are also, um, you know, there's an American philosopher, I can't remember his name, who sort of says, well, you know, it's sort of common sense in a way. Most people are perfectly happy with the idea that, you know, that the cleverest people should kind of run the show. Uh, but then when the cleverest cleverest people's children start running yeah. the show too, and then people run children, you start to get a bit queer. You do quote that in, in the first chapter, yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think... Yeah, well, one can understand why there is this disappointment with meritocracy. I mean, it, and it's a sort of, I mean, you know, poor old meritocracy is getting in, getting both barrels. It's both getting accused of not being meritocratic enough. You know, uh, you know the, these amazing statistics that Sandel quotes that what uh, there are more um, kids at, the, at Ivy League universities in the US from the top one percent of the income spectrum than from the entire bottom 50 percent i mean we got there are figures in the uk about entry into russell group universities that are not quite as bad as that but a but a but a pretty pretty awful too so it, it's not meritocratic enough on the one hand and yet if you know if it did exist it's also a very unattractive ideal 
the, the ideal of turning society into a competition where the most able people win and everybody else feels like a second-class citizen is not is not a good basis of a of a of a, of a good sort of democratic society it kind of offends against uh, the principle of of the kind of you know moral and political equality of all human beings i think um so the but on on the other hand there's no escaping meritocracy to some extent so this is why my this is where my critique slightly differs from the kind of sandel markovitz critique because i think Nobody, not even Michael Young, objected to the idea that we need meritocratic selection for jobs, particularly top jobs. I mean, you know, you do not want to be operated upon by someone who's failed their surgery exams. I mean, you know, you know, you want your best nuclear physicist to be running your nuclear research program. You don't want them to be chosen by lottery. Um, um, so that you know, it's just sort of so obvious. No one really objects to that, and yet. So we then have this situation where you're in favour of meritocratic selection for jobs, um, and one can argue about the the kind of extent of status and reward that should be associated with that. But um, but, but you, if you're in favour of meritocratic selection for jobs, and yet you're not in favour of a meritocratic society, this is something that's quite difficult to explain on the doorstep to your average worker. Now, I mean, I think. Um, you know, you picked up on this uh, the famous quote from uh, Lionel Jospin that, um, um, you know, he's in favour of, a, you know, he said whenever... whenever a free market economy, but not a free market exactly, society. Yeah, in favour of the market economy, but not the market society. And I think the same thing kind of applies. To, so we're in favour of meritocracy as a sort of pragmatic labour market principle, but we do not think it's any kind of ideal. Uh, and, 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 and the distribution of... Uh, you know that you know, using merit as the you know, merit, i.e., cognitive merit, as the uh, as the sort of base for the distribution of reward and status, um, should be balanced by other principles. Um, you know, the principle of human equality, apart from anything else, equal worth, equal value of all human beings. You know, this is in a sense what already drives much of the thinking behind you know the welfare state, welfare economics. Um, Ages, you know, we 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 think there are are sort of you know fundamental sort of so- social provision that that everybody should um, should be entitled to. Um, so, but but like I say, I mean, my stress is is much more on the sort of on the prefix of cognitive meritocracy because obviously, you know, we need indeed paradoxically, I mean, I end up kind of arguing in the book that we need more meritocracy in some of the areas where it's where it's been historically harder to apply i mean because cognitive meritocracy is partly a system of measurement and it's a system of measurement that seems to be fair you know we all we read the same books at school we all sit the same exam you know assuming they're marked you know more or less fairly we're all subject to the same you know whatever our background obviously you know if we're more affluent um or we have parents who've been through higher education we may have certain advantages they may be able to pay for private tutors for us or whatever but 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 leaving that to one side I mean we're all doing the same thing and it's all relatively easy to measure we are we've either got the question right or we've got it wrong now in some other areas of 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 human life lots of other kinds of aptitudes like particularly caring it's a very much more inclusive thing to measure and you get and what one of the things I say in the book is that one of the reasons why care has been sort of uh, has seen diminishing status, at least relative to 
cognitive aptitudes is because of, because of the difficulty of measuring it. And the fact, you know, ask an economist, why is it that people in care homes are so poorly paid? They will say because anybody can do it. That, that is a cognitive judgment applied to at least partially non-cognitive activities. They're saying, well, well, because this person can get a job without having passed their A-levels or whatever, um, that means that means pretty well anyone can do it. But we know that's not true. You spend five or ten minutes in a hospital or a care home, you know there are good carers, there are okay carers, and there are really not very good carers. <laughs> but you know, they're probably all being paid the same. Um, and um, so in some ways, I'm sort of, I'm suggesting that we need to, we need to shift, we need to expand the idea of merit essentially across a broader range of human it's aptitudes. It's interesting because in your book, you tend to say that the Anglo world, mainly the United States and the United Kingdom, seem to be very much ahead of a curve mm. of continental Europe, for example. So I'm sitting here in France, the country of Descartes, the country of the École Normale Supérieure, the country of the Enarch president. Um, how come? How come it is the UK which and in the US which end up pushing this model uh, furthest? Um, yeah, no, I, I would, I would, I mean, for the reasons you've given, I mean, I would, I would cluster France in with the Anglo-Saxon world at least. With respect, you know, the um, uh, you know the Grande École tradition is you know sort of similar, I guess, to the Ivy League universities or the Oxbridge and Imperial and and the and the top London universities here. Um, and indeed, in some ways, it's more overt in France. Um, um, and France is, I mean, no, I mean, the real, um, the real difference is, I mean, I'd say the Germanic countries and the Scandinavian countries have continued to attach more prestige to, particularly the hand. I mean, the sort of practical forms of practical and vocational forms of of knowledge and and aptitude, and. Um, you know, you see that in the, um, as you said in the interim, and I, I, I worked for the FT in Germany for three years, and I, and I saw it firsthand. I mean, they, they you know, fifty percent of school leavers in Germany, and I think this probably this applies to Austria and possibly even to the Netherlands, um, and some of the Scandinavian countries. Fifty percent of school leavers go into you know relatively formal apprenticeships. They're not very well paid for, for two and a half, three years, but they, um, you know, they, they get a proper, <clears throat> proper respected training. And it's something that middle class people do, too. You know, it's, it's not a residual, as it tends to be in the US and the UK and, and France. It tends to be sort of, you know, people who, who, are, who, who don't do well at school, who don't have any other options, end up um, doing an apprenticeship if they're lucky. Um, in, 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 in the Germanic and, and Scandinavian countries, it remains you know, and it's sort of institutionally entwined in the system, deeply embedded. And it seems to be, I mean, the, it is the, 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 the system is under some pressure um, in Germany. It's seen as very inflexible. It often takes several years to come up with, you know, the, the economy is changing the whole time and throwing up new jobs, new kinds of, you know, particularly with the arrival of the sort of digital economy and, and the apprenticeship system in Germany is seen as not having been very responsive to that. And it also now faces more competition from higher education because, you know, it used to be the case that Germany's Germany's higher education system meant, I mean, people went on forever doing degrees, you know, six, seven years was quite normal. You know, you meet all those taxi drivers in Berlin who was age 33 and still doing their PhD on Kant or whatever. Um, and um but in the last few years they've reformed that so they um so you know people are now they, they have a more kind of um british t- style so a bachelor degree lasts three years or, or sometimes four 
um, and, and people are starting their careers in their mid-twenties rather than their late twenties or early or early thirties, as it was in the past. And and and, this is, and there's more encouragement now, I think, to 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 go down that sort of sort of cognitive university path than um, than in the past. So the, so the apprenticeship system is is facing challenges, but I, mean, I think it's still the, the case that about fifty percent of school leavers do it. And as I say. I don't know middle class, even upper middle class German kids who do it. It's not. It's so, so in some sort of sense, these the these things are all seen as somehow on the same level. There isn't a sort of well. I mean, you know, Germany is the creator of the modern university. I mean, it's not as if there are you know air doctor professor. I mean, you know, it's not as if there isn't respect for um, for academic achievement in Germany. There very much is, but but at a certain sort of everyday life level, there's a, the, the, all of these things are sort of seen. In some way on the same level, and you can move from one to the other. I mean, lots of, lots of. I don't know about lots of, but um, Jens Spahn, the health minister in Angela Merkel's cabinet, um, uh, I, I happen to know, did a bank Kaufmann apprenticeship, like like a sort of banking sort of salesman um, apprenticeship uh, when he was a young man, and and then went on to university, and I think I think now has a PhD from somewhere too. So you. Can, you know the, these things are sort of seen as somehow on the same level, or or is sort of progressing from one to another. Um, uh, so anyway, I mean that 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 is one of the, you know, I mean certainly you know in in the uh, in the UK and the US. I mean the US is not never really had much of a kind of a tradition of formal apprenticeships. I mean it had a great manufacturing, still has a great manufacturing um, uh, tradition, but um, the, the whole sort of apprenticeships system is rather sort of haphazard in the US. We used to have, we used to have one here that, that worked pretty well and then with the deindustrialization of the sort of seventies and eighties it all sort of came tumbling down and I think about only about eight or nine percent of school leavers in the UK go into a proper apprenticeship. Um, the government is now trying to do something about that. I mean there has been a recognition that we kind of over expanded higher education. I mean Tony Blair made this famous speech and in um, in the UK in 1999, saying we should send 50% of school leavers to university, I mean, which I think was a wonderful example of, of, I mean, perhaps the foremost the foremost example of the extent to which labour had had sort of lost touch with its roots, and and and, and a more general sort of critique of the um, the kind of lack of emotional intelligence of the modern politician. I mean, no thought seemed to have been given. Well, the extent to which the modern political class is sort of coterminous with the liberal graduate class. The fact that no thought was given is what I call the fifteen fifty problem. That if you know if you're a young person and what fifteen ten or fifteen percent of the people in your class or school or town even go on to higher education and you don't, well that's fine. You know, you go and work in the local factory or office and you know life goes on. But if forty or fifty percent go to higher education and you are part of the 50 or 60 percent that isn't going then it's a completely different psychological ball game and you might well feel that you know your your life chances are now sort of condemned to a lower level than than the people you you once knew who you will probably never meet again you know they'll go off to a residential university or onto the sort of professional escalator quite probably never come back to live um you know beyond occasional visits to see their mum um and um, I mean, I do think the residential university thing was a really big factor in in 
in the Brexit vote. Um, and, and we're worse than almost all other countries in this respect. I mean, you know, France, Germany, you know, most people, unless you're going to the Grande École, most people going to an ordinary university in France or Germany, they tend to go to the university in their hometown. I mean, they might, they might live in student accommodation, but they won't then, you know, they'll remain friends with the people that they were friends with at secondary school. Mm. Yeah, and it, that that really, I mean, I, I was really, I was really interested in, in how you sort of, what you've just described of the residential uh, university um, model that the UK has and to, to, a, to a, perhaps to a lesser extent, the US and, so, well, it depends on who you talk to, but the US also in especially in the elite segment of the, the tertiary. I mean, the Ivy League and the liberal arts yeah. universities tend to be residential, but many of the, you know, many of the state universities. Can yeah. Be. But even, even within that, I mean, it certainly belies a different, just a different worldview and a different mindset. The fact that people are kind of pushed to leave the, 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 um, the, the, the nest, right. And, and, and yeah. go to, to college. I wonder, I mean, I'm really glad David, you're, you're tying all this down to the realm of policy. I mean, your book begins on a very sort of moral, uh, tone. And what I found really, really appeal, appealing about your argument is that at the, at the heart of it is this moral assessment that listen, it's just not right to apportion all of this, uh, repute and self-esteem to people who, um, who have, who seem, who have a claim to this one very narrow, um, a span of human ability, and we should be yeah. applying a sort of a broader look that that prices uh, the 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 hand and the heart um, uh, as much as the head. And I, I wonder, just go, you know, um, going down this sort of rabbit hole of policy, um, your argument get your your book gets very practical. Um, you, you speak a lot. Obviously, you, you just explain how we should be moving towards more of a Germ Germanic Scandinavian mo model of uh, vocational uh, training. We had John Kemper a few weeks back on the show, who was a journalist in Germany who describes all this very well as well. Um, obviously, you, you speak a lot about kind of the democratization of university education and how that sort of overproduces elites, um, also the sort of the work-life balance. But I wonder, you know, my question is, how much difference can policy really make? I mean, uh, what's your sort of understanding of how policies interact with just societal mores? I mean, isn't it the case that policies that have given us a massified university system that have given us, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, an overemphasis on, um, uh, on sort of uh, liberal career paths and sort of vocational career paths. Isn't that a result of the Moors? And if, if that were to be the case, how do we change that sort of underlying, um, um, I, I, I don't really know what the word would be for this, but it, it, is policy, does policy really matter? How much of a difference can it, can it really make? Yeah, I mean, I, just as a very quick preface, I mean, I want to just stress, you know, obviously, I'm not against high intelligence, you know, I mean, high intelligence is kind of more necessary for the human species to to help dig our way out of some of the holes we got ourselves into um, than ever before, you know, we need, you know, very clever teams of people to, to be working together to come up with a COVID vaccine to work out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, I guess it, my, my complaint is not so much about uh, is that is that a whole kind of cognitive bureaucracy below? I mean, you know, most of the people who go to university are no more able than the people who don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is a. I mean, I you know, I I I, I don't believe in equality of esteem. I think it's it's kind of it's nonsense, really. I mean, the highest esteem will and should always go to the, you know the, the people producing new and important knowledge. You know, the, the kind of Einsteins and you know the, the really clever people at the top of that tree um, deserve the highest respect and, and, and possibly indeed the highest rewards. 
Um, but there's a you know, there's a sort of been a piggybacking process that's happened that you know lots lots you know most of us are most of us are in the kind of middle of the of the of the the bell curve for kind of raw intelligence um intelligence in any case very sort of slippery and context dependent thing um and there's been a sort of uh, there's been a sort of passing off so i think you know, too much prestige and reward has been going to the sort of middling and lower rank of the cognitive class and this is where i sort of could come coming back to your question this is why I'm actually much more optimistic than most people on this front. So um, it's true, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, we're on a kind of um, automatic pilot at the moment. I mean, you know, more people than ever are going to university, even though <clears throat> the signals are already being sent and are there for everybody to read, that we have reached what I call peak head. You know, look at the look at the decline in the graduate income premium in in most rich countries. You know, it used to be you know when I when I went to university and when I don't know eight or ten percent of the population did. You know, the premium was sort of seventy percent, hundred percent even, uh, and it's still. I mean, you still have quite a high premium for people at the most elite institutions. But if you take um, graduates as a whole, I mean, the the the, the graduate income premium has sort of fallen to you know, barely ten percent for, for for many people or even less. Um, you also have a third of graduates in non-graduate employment, even five to ten years after graduating. That's certainly in the UK, and I think there are similar numbers in the US. I'm not so sure about continental Europe. I think it may be a bit lower there. Um, um, and this is even before AI starts to kick in. You know, we now have, um, and, th- and this is why I, you know, I don't worry about the fact. Okay, the political class may be incapable of sort of seeing outside its own way of thinking its own priorities um and therefore you know the you know the answer to everything the answer to covid is going to you know send more people to university and with the answer you know um and and they're still stuck on this sort of on this now i think kind of naive and quite damaging belief that we will have a just an eternally expanding sort of professional class i mean the the, the numbers are there again to see um in the UK, I think the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, has a is it seven or eight occupational class sort of schema. Top two social classes are essentially the kind of higher and lower managerial and professional class. Um, a very large proportion of of the adult working population are in those two. I think it was, uh, I was looking at the figures the other day. In the year two thousand, it was about thirty five percent. It's now I think thirty six and a half percent. In twenty years, it's, it's 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 risen a little bit, but it's massively slowed down. Uh, so we're not so you know education policy, social mobility policy, even sort of productivity policy is partly based on a false assumption about um, about the value of from the point of view of productivity. You know, we got all Robert Gordon's work on productivity showing that actually the decline in productivity in most rich countries coincides with massive levels of investment in research universities. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily doing anything for productivity, um, and social mobility. Or for it. So, so you know, we've got to adjust. We, I mean, or, or rather, we're going to adjust anyway. I mean, that I mean, without wanting to sound too sort of Marxist determinist about this, um, we are. 
that, that there it's going to happen <laughs> you know there aren't going to be the knowledge economy turns out not to need that many knowledge jobs it needs a you know thin layer of, of you know the brilliant people to kind of write the software for the robots and and do sorts of uh, you know and, and and push back the boundaries of knowledge in all sorts of different areas medicine you know in law or even finance you know lot, lots of sort of professional areas where obviously we still need lots of clever people uh, but um, we are, you know, the, the, the massed ranks of the expanded cognitive class are going to be thinned out. Um, there's, there's no question about that in the next 30 years. And so, and that is what will drive, I think, the political impetus for, um, for, a, for a better distribution. Obviously, as you imply, I mean, status is not in the gift of politicians to, to distribute. On the other hand, status to some extent follows the money. Um, and... Um, and and uh, and the distribution of income is to some extent in the gift of politicians. So, uh, I think, you know, if you have a whole sort of new group of of people, perhaps the people who would have have previously gone into higher education and into professional jobs, who are now having to find uh, other ways of earning a living, and, you know, they're going to be moving into um, you know possibly quite sort of basic delivery jobs or um, you know working in supermarkets or whatever, um, or I mean, most specifically, um, moving into the care sector. I mean, we have absolutely massive um, shortages of, well, we have shortages in skilled trades, we have shortages in the so-called missing middle, of, um, you know, the sort of technician, um, you know, the, the, the people, the, the kind of non-academic engineers and technicians who sort of keep the, basically the kind of maintenance guys who sort of keep the show on the road. Big shortages among uh, of them and huge shortages in, in most um, uh, areas of care, and that is, you know, that that, that we're going to need more and more. We already have a crisis, and yet, you know, with the demand for, you know, we're going to need tens of thousands of dementia nurses in the in the coming decades, um, and um, you know, and and millions more people will be working in in face to face um, caring occupations of one kind or another, uh, and um, so I think. The, the the sort of political resistance or the inability to sort of see some of the things I'm arguing about will in, will be less relevant just because um, the the kind of the economic trends will 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 be pushing hugely in that direction. It's interesting because this overemphasis on cognitive meritocracy at times has felt like a confiscation of democracy. You have a famous "the people are tired of experts" that Michael Gurf said. And it's a sentiment you share to some extent in your book. Um, with the current pandemic, though, we welcomed the experts back, especially in March and April, because we needed that certainty given all the chaos around it. Uh, and we really pretty much toyed with the old idea of, of Saint-Simon of having government by science, with medical experts telling us what to do and the politicians being too afraid of going against them. And then we saw that the experts didn't agree on much, um, that the, some medical studies were wrong, uh, that the doctors also had their own human flaws. Uh, has the pandemic been, in, in many ways, the best case against expertise? Well, yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I, I think you're partly right. I mean, um, and of course, you know, as the scientists and experts have been saying in their defence, science is always provisional, and they're all, you know, and it's always based on on, on evidence and experiment, and um, and the evidence has been changing and. You know, and 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 people in in science or or with expert knowledge of various kinds disagree about things, 
Um, so, you know, ultimately it needs the politicians to sort of choose between, you know, you've had this, the there's been this kind of row between the epidemiologists in uh, Oxford and I think Cambridge and Imperial, and the government has broadly taken the Imperial side, um, whereas the, um, you know, I think the Oxford people were, were much more in favour of sort of adapting and sort of collective immunity and things like that. I'm not... I'm not. I'm not. Haven't been following that closely, but I think one of the reasons why in the UK um, the government almost uncritically embraced um, whatever it saw as the scientific consensus is precisely because it was. Um, it felt that it was seen by um, a, you know, a, a lot of the political and media class, and and, and indeed you know, um, perhaps quite a lot of the country too. Don't forget, we were just coming out of four years of a very divisive argument about Brexit. And 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 the whole famous sort of Michael Gove comment that you know that educated people love to kind of mock. I mean, actually, if you if you look at what Michael Gove actually said, it's a very particular critique of um, employer organisations and what they had been saying on about the, about you know they'd all be in favour of the UK joining the euro. You know that and they and they you know they've been just they just been wrong about all sorts of things. Was the point that. Um, Gove was making, and, and I think perfectly legitimately, you know, and pe- people are fed up. Well, what he was really implying is that, you know, that experts are not neutral. Experts, or, you know, particularly of a sort of social science, political science, business kind, you know, are, are often, um, you know, expressing their own biases and their own vested interests. And, um, and those vested interests and biases are often for you know, for, you know, in my language, the kind of anywhere worldview is, is, is prioritised by, by those experts, you know, they're in favour of mobility, openness, autonomy, or, you know, all the things that highly educated people tend to be in favour of. Um, so, but, but I think the government here uh, at the start of the pandemic embraced the, the sort of following the science mantra almost to, too enthusiastically, because it was very well aware of the suspicion towards it um in in relation to you know the expert and uh, you know the the fact that you know a, a big slice of the political establishment and, and media establishment thought of it as a, a sort of barely legitimate populist government um, so it was almost sort of saying well so so snub you look here we are embracing the science so no 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 um without perhaps giving sufficient thought to um, to how the science doesn't always get it right, but no, it's, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. Actually, I think this hasn't been, you know, in the same way that it hasn't been a great pandemic for international institutions. The EU hardly covered itself in glory, um, nor the WHO, nor, um, and, and indeed, nor the sort of the collective body of experts. Um, on the other hand, we are very dependent on them, the medical ones, anyway, to sort of come up with a cure for it. Um, no, and and I think the whole the whole business of um, you know clapping for carers, not just carers. I, mean, I think that that sort of feeling of um, in the early stages of the pandemic, that was quite a sort of communitarian, um, a sort of national communitarian spirit was evoked in many countries. And we were, and it's not just the not just the kind of nurses and doctors. I mean, nurses and doctors had relatively decent status and, and, and certainly relatively decent pay for, for, for doctors and indeed for nurses. I mean, nurses in, in the UK are not badly paid. Um, I, I interviewed somebody in my book who'd only been three years out of college um, and he, unusually it was a he indeed, I was talking to him about 
the extent to which men might move more into these very uh, overwhelmingly female-dominated um, professions. I mean, NHS nursing is what 88% female, I think. Um, but I was talking to him. I mean, he, he's on 36 grand three years after graduating. I mean, that includes a bit of London waiting, and I think he was doing some antisocial hours shifts, some night shifts. Um, you know, the, the, the real Cinderella service in caring is, is adult social care. Um, but but um, I, I, but I think it was it was it w- we weren't just clapping carers. We were clapping the the kind of the the little people, the invisible people that keep keep the you know the hidden wiring of our societies going. The the man drivers, the people at shelves in supermarkets and so on. I think that's a really important thing. And I think it'll, um, we just became aware of our interdependence, of our dependence upon uh, people. You know, many of them doing minimum wage jobs in in supermarkets. Um, I mean, I think that spirit. Well, I hope that spirit will kind of linger on to some extent, uh, you know, and and contribute to this to this sort of greater spread of um, of of um, reward and status across the app. And that that's one of the things that I find most interesting about the book, uh, David. You've been at work on this book for 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 a while, and um, there, there's there's a visionary. There's it's almost like a visionary tale. You've um, you've you've kind of seen this this coming for a while uh, as you explain in the book this cognitive meritocracy has been running out of kilter um the the kind of the market signals the the labor market the politics are lining up to sort of slowly um slowly turn the page on this overemphasis on cognitive skills and um you were at work on this book even before the pandemic and i find your your description of that moment and in the very early days of the pandemic is, is very telling and, and and in some ways is foreboding uh, some of the, the some of the arguments in, in your book, uh, people really, as you say, were coming out to their balconies to clap not only um, NHS staffers, but generally uh, every the people who are in charge of you know putting food on on our tables and and doing doing all the sort of the, the manual jobs that keep the lights on and keep life going. And I wonder um, what role this. Um, uh, tendency away from cognitive meritocracy plays within the larger, what, what we've come to call the larger political realignment. This is an issue that we're really interesting, interested here, here at Uncommon Decency. We cover it a lot. The sort of the, and, and this was a major, um, a major piece of your previous book, the, the idea that, you know, the, the liberal left is realigning around the interests and the mores of the cosmopolitan uh, kind of uh, anywheres, whereas the conservative parties on both sides of the pond are, are being made to reconnect with a working class constituency that they had in many ways kind of um, forgotten. And um, I wonder, you know, do, do, you, do you see um, the argument in your book is in any way connected to this realignment? And, and it would seem as though, you know, I'm really interested in your perspective here because you do come, as you explain in the book, from a sort of a, a central left, right, um, uh, uh, perspective. And uh, one of the things I find is that the left um, and you can see this clearly, I, I believe, with both Labour and the Democrats, but they they don't really seem ready and willing to really contest cognitive meritocracy. I think what they're really emphasizing is that we need to be pushing more women and minorities up to the top ranks of the cognitive meritocracy. I don't see any sort of deeper um, questioning of the, the entire system. So how do you how do you what's what's the right way to think about that, that connection? Hmm. Yeah, no, that's. Um... That is interesting. I mean, I think, um, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the products of the um, the kind of misalignment 
um, one of the sort of products of peak head, I think, uh, which I, I touched on earlier. I mean, the, the, this idea that knowledge economy doesn't need so many knowledge workers, so we're overproducing a kind of you know graduate graduate elite class almost, um, and that is creating um, at least short term. Um, crisis of expectations which is leading to, to which i think is one of the factors behind political eruptions like bernie sanders in the us like jeremy corbyn in the uk possibly melanchon in uh, young often ed, quite educated class you know usually white um well actually you know even the blm movement may have some um may, may have some roots in this same thing you know young 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 black kids, you know, who've worked hard at school, gone to university, and then, you know, like their, you know, white Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn supporting equivalents, they find they're working in some pretty crap, you know, 20 grand a year, 22 grand a year sort of back office administrative job that just as easily been done by a, one of their non-graduate peers or indeed possibly was done by their non-graduate parents. And you know, they've been, you know, and if they're in the US or the UK, they've also accumulated a whole lot of student debt, uh, sort of thinking, well, hang on. Um, but they've also acquired the kind of often quite left liberal mindset that, that tends to be associated with, with going through university, particularly humanities courses at university. So they're, you know, they're, um, they have, um, you know, there's a crisis of expectations that, um, that their aspirations, that they're in a way, they're rather traditionally middle class aspirations for a high status professional job are not being met. They've also got a kind of leftish political ideology that they've acquired um, from three or four years at university, and this is, you know, this is creating little political eruptions. Um, but I mean, I think the um, the bigger story, I mean, that that's a sort of subset of a bigger story, which is essentially. That we are finally, I think, um, um, well, um, perhaps that's being too optimistic. But I mean, I think what I call the kind of <clears throat> the missing centre in the politics of rich countries in the last few decades has been <clears throat> um, has been what I call the kind of the Daniel Bell credo. I mean, you know, Daniel Bell, the American political scientist who wrote the end of ideology, the coming of post-industrial society. Yeah. Died a few years ago, but he he was asked. I think it was in the sometime by a journalist, sometime in the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties, for his political credo, and he said, um, "I'm a social democrat in economics. I'm a liberal in politics, and, I, and I'm somewhat conservative in social and cultural matters." And that combination, for all sorts of contingent historical reasons, mainly I think because well, the, the left went off in a in a in a very culturally liberal and even hyper liberal direction in the 60s, 70s, and has never come back, indeed has sort of ploughed further on. Um, um, I mean, the, the right went very free market in the 80s, 90s, but has to some extent come back. And that is, you know, uh, that is why I think um, it's easier for the right to move left on economics than it is for the left to move right on culture. And that um, that ought to give... The, the the sort of you know sensible center right a kind of inbuilt advantage. Um, on the other hand, you could you know there there are other factors that that uh, that, that give apparently sort of inbuilt advantages to to the left. I mean, like the continuing expansion of higher education. I mean, higher education you know is a kind of machine for producing liberal minded kids. Um, um, so there are um, although if I'm right, then 
higher education is going to shrink somewhat, so the left may lose some of that advantage. Um, so, yeah, so I think um, um, that that kind of missing middle in, in, in politics is sort of the closest we've got to it probably at the moment is the British Conservative Party. Um which, as you say, was elected. I mean, it's now it now has a higher, you know, it has more working class people voting for it, or lower income people voting for it uh, than the Labour Party. The Labour Party remains very much, as do all pretty well all centre left parties across the rich world, remains very much a liberal graduate party. Um, you know, it's sort of worrying away about how to reconnect with uh, with its working class voters. But I think I think they have largely disappeared. I mean, or rather, I think they're not coming back. Because um, the you know the party remains absolutely overwhelmingly dominated by liberal graduate philosophy. I mean, in its activists, in its MPs. I mean, kind of in the entire world that it that it moves in, uh, and that um, and that's not uh, you know, and that means there is a deep squeamishness about you know pretty sort of basic thing. You know, the the kind of you know putting the Putting the nation first. I mean, you know, you sort of, you know what, what most citizens think is sort of completely normal. You know, you put the interests of national citizens before universal interests. Well, well, no, you don't actually. If you, um, you know, if you believe proper left liberal um, ideology, then you don't. <laughs> you know, you're you're a kind of universalist. I mean, obviously, not in practice. You know, we spend whatever it is, sort of, fifteen times more on our health service than we do on international aid. Um, um, which, if you're a true universalist, obviously you'd be disgusted by. Um, so, you know, they, they live with all those contradictions, but nonetheless, that is the sort of gravitational force of a lot of the thinking, um, tends to be liberal universalist. Uh, the, the, the family is sort of looked at with, with some suspicion, you know, I mean, really very basic things. Uh, still, you know, 70, 80% of our populations regard as common sense, which are not common sense to the, to the liberal graduate worldview. So I think, yeah, you know, as I say, I think going forward, um, that should give the centre right uh, an inbuilt advantage. I mean, you saw even before the pandemic, the British Conservative Party was kind of becoming very Keynesian. I mean, you know, the, the idea of balanced budgets, and obviously this is helped by the fact that um, um, you know the kind of what is it, the modern monetary economics? Everyone seems to now believe you can just doing QE, you can just print money and we're not going to have inflation. I mean, I think actually we, we will probably have a bit of a rude awakening on that in a few years' time. Um, but interestingly, I mean, I think actually uh, I've got an uncle who's a uh, Professor Charles Goodhart who's just written a, a rather interesting um, about how, sort of po pointing out that we're now, we're, we're at the sort of inflection point. I mean, one of the reasons why inequality has been such a, a big issue, such a big problem in our societies in the last 30 years or so, is that we had a um, this sort of labour market shock of the huge expansion of the global labour market, um, China's entry into the WTO and so on about 30 years ago, um, 20 years ago. And that, um, that you know, obviously you know, depressed wages for people in the kind of middle and lower end of the income spectrum in rich countries um, what that that process is now going into reverse. Uh, that will enormously strengthen the power of labour, um, particularly organised labour, although there isn't that much of it left in the private sector. Um, but, but that will that will you know that will bid up the price of labour. I mean, labour will become scarce again. Essentially, is what there is what him and his co-author are arguing, uh, and that will have 
that will have really interesting um, implications for for our politics. So, and I think um, um, we will we'll kind of you know having you know we had a more we had a kind of con in income convergence period in the two or three decades after the Second World War. Then we had this great sort of income divergence period, and we may now be going back into income convergence. In which I mean, this can in a way reinforces my point. Uh, that should also, in some ways, help the centre right. Um, I mean, it, it, on the assumption that the centre right is sort of closer to people's sort of cultural instincts, um, if economics is going to be sort of neutralised as, as, as a political issue between um, between centre left and centre right, partly because um, you know incomes will be rising quite fast, inequality will be coming down, so the Causes of the left will have less um, um, less teeth, as it were, less relevance. Um, so the issue switches much more, as indeed it already has. You know, over the last sort of ten or fifteen years, you know, socio-cultural issues have partly taken over from the socio-economic issues. Um, and I suspect, you know, if, if my uncle is right, then that is going to be even more the case um, in the future. So to to wrap this up, we've got two more personal questions I guess one is um, your ideas have made a bit of a splash especially in the UK I think I think Theresa May made her famous Citizens of Nowhere speech a few weeks after you published for Rota Somewhere um, and do you think to some extent that your book or more generally intellectuals shape the public discourse or do you think this is kind of a, just a natural trend that would happen anyways in intellectuals you know just, just like the owl of Minerva come afterwards and, and describe it I think intellectuals tend to have relatively little um, impact on politics. I mean, except at the level of sort of phrase making. <laughs> um, but for example, have have you met with, with politicians? Have they been interested in you? Have 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 they have they kind of try and build their platform around your ideas? Have you had some um, kind of no, interaction? Not, no, not really. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, I know Nick Timothy a bit, who wrote Rosa May's famous speech. Um, um, I mean, you know, he uh, he didn't use my language exactly. Now, I mean, you know, these are all quite generic ideas. I mean, I don't think really. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was part of a sort of climate of opinion, and, and perhaps that helps to give people confidence to to say certain things and write certain things. I mean, I think they actually made a bit of a hash of that. I mean, he, you know, they alienated huge numbers of people unnecessarily. I think with that, uh, or rather, you. You qualify it. So you say, I mean, I think the point she made is a perfectly valid one. And actually, she was making an economic point, not so much a cultural point, she was making a point about the, you know, the, 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 the kind of high rollers who, you know, who don't pay tax, you know, who have, have you know, including corporates who, you know, who, who have all their, their goodies sort of hidden in, in, in tax um, you know, tax havens and so on, and and I mean, I think the I think the basic idea that she was pointing to that, you know, you you, you kind of that you know, national you know economic and cultural and political elites, you know, you know, for the system to work, they need to have a certain degree of allegiance to their own country and to their fellow citizens, you know, rather than sort of thinking um, of um, you know of of uh, you know the the international world as their uh, as their only playground um, but I mean it, it would have been so easy to say it in a way that didn't alien all she had to say was look there's nothing wrong with being internationally minded or internationally connected you know I've got a nephew who comes from Madagascar or whatever, whatever you know um, but uh, you know but you know we need for societies to work 
you know, we, we need we need elites also to to feel an attachment to their to their fellow citizens at home, and that you know, there's nothing nativist or xenophobic about that. That's just sort of you know, that's common sense. Uh, but no, I mean, I think I think if you know, if you look back at the, you know things like the shift from sort of traditional social democracy to the kind of Clinton Blair version. Intellectuals play a great role in that. I don't think so. Not particularly here. Um, you know, it was it was you know it was kind of Blair and Gordon Brown and Peter Mandelson and um, Philip Gould actually. The, he, he died a few years ago, but the uh, famous ad guy um, who you know, I mean they you know it was, you know it was sort of you know it was all a kind of political tropes in a way, wasn't it? You know, and sort of neither finding a third way between statist social democracy and 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 free market i mean it, these were these were not exactly um deep ideas really i mean it was kind of political common sense um and there were people you know anthony giddens was the famous sort of intellectual at the court of tony blair um but um yeah i think there are these climates sort of emerge not really from the brains of intellectuals. Intellectuals then um, give them a certain, yeah, you know, they, they they stick labels on things that are happening anyway, or they, um, um, or they, as I as I was saying earlier, they sort of they help give confidence, perhaps, to um, to the people who are espousing the ideas. Mm-hmm. I have one last question, which is about your personal uh, trajectory, because. In many ways, you kind of look like the caricature of it anywhere because, you know, you start with somewhat conservative. Your parents are uh, conservatives. You end up in university, you become quite liberal. You, you work in the kind of intellectual liberal world. And and yet at some point you're quite close to the to the, to the Blair movement. And then at some point you kind of shift. You have, uh, maybe Road to Damascus is too strong, but early 2000s you start kind of realising the other side of it. What kind of What kind of books, what kind of interactions have shape that um, uh, trajectory um i think it was probably um yeah i mean i had well i'm mean, gonna come from a very privileged background um and my dad was a tory mp so it was perhaps inevitable that i spent a few years being a trotsky um <laughs> and, that, and then sort of made it quite a long slow journey back to the sort of sensible center left which is where i was for most of my adult life um and in some ways still regard myself i mean i, was, I would still say i was a social democrat I mean, I, I, I sort of go along these days with the sort of Daniel Bell credo. Um, but I think probably what made me more sympathetic to sort of small C conservatism, to sort of, you know, people who who like to sort of stick with their traditions uh, was was the whole issue of, of immigration. And, um, mm. Writing a, um, almost sort of accidentally stumbling into... I mean, I just accepted the whole, you know, we, we tend to sort of think in terms of packages, don't we? You know, we can't think through all sorts of different issues. So if you're on the centre-left, then obviously you're in favour of large-scale immigration and blah, 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 uh, you know, just sort of goes with the with the package. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was writing, I got kind of interested in this in this idea of the tension between diversity and solidarity, which I still think is a mm-hmm. sort of meta theme. And I wrote this essay, rather sort of speculative, um, sort of philosophical essay in Prospect, and it ended up being spotted by the, well, actually being spotted by Will Hutton, who then uh, alerted 
Alan Rossbridger to it, who was editing The Guardian at the time, and he it, it struck a chord, um, and he pub they published all six thousand words of it. I mean, they don't often do that, um, and that caused a little bit of a kind of row. Various people accused me of being a kind of liberal racist or whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> this kind of racist. Uh, a nice power light, I think, maybe one of the phrases, but. Um, um, and that and that sort of was a bit of a shocker, and it sort of pushed me into the subject. I mean, I've not, I've not really thought about race or immigration or multiculturalism very much before. And and I and the kind of more I got into it, the more kind of sympathy I felt for you know people whose lives had often been sort of changed really pretty dramatically over a twenty or thirty year period. Obviously, I wasn't blaming that you know the people who'd come into the country and had changed the, the neighbourhoods or the places they lived. It wasn't their fault either. You know, everyone was just sort of following their um following the path to, to, to their best possible life but uh it's and and you know, uh, you know particularly at a time when uh, uh, you know racial hostility you know has, has been you know on a pretty dramatic declining curve in the uk but but people i thought still you know people felt very uneasy about the pace of change and it seemed to me uh, a lot of modern liberalism just didn't get that and had no sympathy for it, no understanding for it. And I think, um, and and I and I thought that that was that was kind of a, I mean, like I said about Tony Blair's uh, university speech. It was kind of emotionally unintelligent. Um, but actually, you know, the, the somewhere worldview, placing a high emphasis on security and and familiarity, um, uh, you know, is 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 perfectly decent. Um, as is the anywhere worldview, you know, that, that's the sort of tragedy. Both of these worldviews are perfectly decent, at least in their mainstream forms. It's, it's just that they sort of conflict over some some pretty fundamental things, particularly to do with with pace of change. So, and I think it was that, yeah, it, it was kind of through the immigration story that I came to um, appreciate the the sort of the, the narrowness in some ways of, of a much modern liberal thinking about about place and. And and sort of, and community and 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 just stability in the way that one lives and and it was sort of I suppose it was also the kind of the kind of overtness of the hypocrisy of the belief that um, you know minority ethnicities are to be valued and em and embraced and minority traditions are 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 good but but majority ones are not. Majority majority ethnicity is, is 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 something sort of you know potentially poisonous and malevolent, um, you know. But but you know, but all human beings sort of share, share the same, you know, some sort of similar idea. You know, we're all group uh, beings, and we all we all want to feel secure, and um, um, yeah, and and it just seemed to be it was Eric Kaufman talked about sort of asymmetrical multiculturalism. It seemed to um, and, and I think you know, I think we have a healthier debate about many of these things now. But there was a when I was writing, I mean, I wrote that um, too diverse question mark essay in Prospect back in two thousand and four, I think it was. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, writing something like that now wouldn't have the same um, impact. People wouldn't. Um, so to that extent, I think we do have a sort of somewhat more mature debate about these things. Well, that's, that's a really, I really appreciate you kind of walked us through your um, thinking and, and really opened 
yourself up to that that um, more personal kind of question, and it really gives folks a, an understanding of the driving themes and dilemmas that that have that have informed your work. Um, and most of all, I want to thank you, David, because you graced us with far more time than we initially agreed to. And uh, the the reason for that, and you may you may already sense the the tone of our questions, is because the Head Hand and Heart is really a visionary book. I think. It'll when people get to read it on, on both sides of the pond, they'll they'll um, it's going to open their minds up to a a very deep and underlying shift in our societies that hasn't yet been explored. And you do it with with a lot of um, clarity and eloquence. And I would really encourage encourage everyone to head over to the Amazon page of Head Hand and Heart. Um, David, let me just ask you: the book is already out in the UK. Does it have a publication date in the US as well? Yeah, it's already out in the U.S. as well. Actually, in fact, it was it was published on the same day on um, uh, I think it was September the eighth or tenth um, in the in the U.S. too. So um, it's got a it's a very slightly different uh, edition. It's got a it's got a slightly different uh, subtitle mm. that I, I have to admit I'm slightly less keen on, um, and um, and there's a little bit less detail about sort of thing you know sort of British further education things like that. Mm. I think I, uh, a bit snipped back a bit but it's essentially the same book um and uh, you know it'd be really nice if um if it got uh, if it got a bit more i mean it's been very widely and mainly positively reviewed mm. here it's 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 received a bit less attention in the u.s obviously i haven't been able to go there um and and sort of have meetings i've, I've done a bit of media um and it's it's had one or two reviews but um Hopefully it'll be a slower burn mm -hmm. there. It's actually being it's also being published. It's just been published in France, mm. and it's going, and it's going to be published in Germany in February. Well, so um, I'm looking forward. Well, to that's that. wonderful to know. And we uh, for for anyone in our audience from from any of those places um, do know that the the book is already available. And we really hope that after this conversation, which is only on, on surface level, touched on some of these themes, but do do go ahead and buy the book on Amazon. I can tell you that you know it's it's worth anyone's time. It's really fascinating. And um, David, thank you so much. We know you're really busy at this point of uh, the rolling the, the process of rolling out the book, and you've been very gracious with your time. So thank you so much, and uh, uh, we look forward to talking to to you on on another occasion. And uh, uh, thank you so much for listening. And um, see you on another occasion about uncommon decency. So. David Goodhart is out. This has been the, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Frankie, this has been the sixth uh, episode of Uncommon Decency. Um, what did you think? I thought, I thought it was fascinating. I really like the idea of um, head, heart, and head being together. And I think it goes back to a really old idea, which is the idea of, um, of society being a political body, just like a human body. And if you look back at this, very, it's a very old Roman metaphor. Um, there, there, was a, there was a moment where Rome was fighting a war against one of its neighbors and, and the pleb decided not to fight it because they had too, many, uh, too much debt, too many taxes and so on and so on. And so the patrician sent a negotiator and the negotiator said to the pleb, listen, we are just like a human body. We've got different parts. You, the pleb, are the hands and we, the patrician, are the stomach. I understand that you think the hands uh, giving all the food to the stomach. But if, if you stop feeding us, the entire body will die. And I think in, in many sense, um, the, the pleb was asking for re-evaluation um, re of uh, social status, uh, of their social status. And in many ways, this, this is David Goodhart is, is making uh, as an argument.
but it's interesting to see that idea of of, of um, political body being a human body being uh, being so strong in, in for the past three thousand years. Yeah, and it definitely. I mean, it's perhaps no coincidence that we still speak, and this is more of a academic. This is academic jargon, but political theory uses heavily uh, the expression body politic in French, right? Le corps politique. It's it's the idea that it's an organic uh, assemblage of different functions, and each uh, fills kind of one uh, one specific narrow function, but they all together kind of um, form one cohesive whole. And 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 that's real. I mean, I think it's a really great um, metaphor you're you're using because that's that's what uh, David Goodhart is, is driving home here with this book is that we've um, over over um, down yeah overemphasized some of these um, high end professions and and career paths and life paths. At the expense of others, and and we're we're living with the consequences, and and the kind of readjustment that he advocates for. I, you know, we've gotten into some of the policy, but we perhaps haven't delved deep enough into it. It's it's an ongoing question, right? How do you take power away from the smarties, right? <laughs> the whole question is how do you reapportion respect and self esteem? And I think Goodhart in in the interview was grappling with the. Um, yeah, with the taste, how how do you really bring that about, right? You can because you can't have status communism. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, you, you, and, and it's not something you can centrally plan. It's not something you can apportion from government. Politicians don't necessarily have the key. Uh, David has one had one for me. He said, you know, um, first of all, start with money, start with income, and and a lot of the symbolic repute will follow. Um, I I I would concur with that. Although I I'd still think you know there's there's a way in which that could possibly turn wrong where if you started, where if you, um, where people, you know, people are, are looking for more than just higher salaries. Um, you know, it's, it's a sense of recognition. It's a sense of being, uh, valued for the specific contribution you make. Um, so yeah, but I, I think it, like I said, like I said, at the end, I think this book is going to be a, um, it's going to, it's going to make a splash, certainly in the UK where it's already being widely positively reviewed. Yeah. But I think there's another concept which is interesting because if you go back to the, um, to the roots of meritocracy, merit comes from meritum in Latin, which means worthy of praise. Nowadays, when we think meritocracy, we think the smartest people, but that's not always the case. We want the most competent people to be on top. That's what he said about the nuclear physicists the rest of it. But how do you define competence has changed throughout time? You know, competence used to be 100,000 years ago, whoever was strongest. Then it was whoever is the richest. You know, there's, there's different criteria which change over time. And when, and when the, there's an ossification of the meritocracy, it's toppled and you've got something else replacing it. You know, the French Revolution was essentially an old ossification of a meritocratic system based on uh, old privileges. And then he had, then he had, uh, yeah, he was wiped out, and it essentially was about virtue for a second with under Robespierre, and then it became about uh, military might. You know, that's how Napoleon went to took power. So I think it's interesting that we always have a kind of new meritocracy, but right now, what makes it so particular? It's about it's about cognitive meritocracy, which means, at some extent, for smart people on top, you know, the new, the new, the new privilege, the new elites, feel less obligation to the stupid, you know, than the rich would have to the poor. I mean, stupid is, is too strong a word, but you know, the, the less cognitively gifted, I guess. Um, and I think that's what's so interesting about it is, uh, yes, cognitive meritocracy has the advantage of pushing on top of a ladder people who are smartest. 
But then the perverse effect is the people who are smartest feel little, they have to, they have to give little back for people who are less cognitively gifted. So I think that was a very interesting tension as well that was explored yeah. in the book. Yeah, because it's, as, as David nuances, there is, it is one thing to um, give um, cognitive ability its due. It is one thing to reward people for uh, their aptitudes, their abilities, and the way that they've honed them. It would be unfair to, to proceed otherwise. But the hurdle lies in when that, along with that, goes uh, a sense of higher worth. And I think that's part of what David is arguing is that, listen, worth is a, you know, there's so many different things that should go into uh, the self-respect and the esteem that people attach to their professions. And I really like at the beginning, he, he talks a lot about, you know, um, listen, there, I mean, intelligence or cognitive ability is only one kind of aptitude. What about emotional intelligence, social intelligence, virtue, hard work, a commitment to family, commitment to, and, and all these things should be valued as well in a more balanced way. So, um, but anyway, it was, it was really wonderful and we were really happy to get David in. Um, we uh, appreciate everyone for, for listening and we look forward to seeing you uh, next week for another episode. Oh,